Welcome to another episode of Adorium Talks. I'm Dominic McVeigh. I'm a senior advisor at Adorium. And today we're going to be talking about what next? What next in this age of COVID-19 and the coronavirus? And I'm joined by a very good friend of mine, Marco Vicenzo. Uh, Marco is a geopolitical expert. You may have seen him uh, many times on CNN, being at CNBC. He's an advisor to NATO, the World Bank. He's um, a, a major international speaker on geopolitics and what we are seeing today in the world. I often see him pop up on TV from countries such as Venezuela, Colombia, talking about um, issues in, in South America. And then the next week he'll be uh, talking about what's happening in China. And at the moment, Marco is, for me, one of the go-to individuals to understand what we are facing, what we have faced. He called out this uh, pandemic months before uh, we, we saw it on our TVs and, and what the world was facing. So really a pr privilege today to be joined by, by Marco and his understanding and expertise and have him here today on Adorium Talks. And look, Marco, why don't you just, uh, in your own words as well, describe a little bit about the work you're doing, the organizations you've worked with, so the audience can really understand that this is a conversation they, they need to listen to and, and take seriously. And you're a real expert yeah. here to, to talk about the issues we're facing with corona. Great. Yeah. Thank you again for the introduction. Once again, my name is Marco Vicencino. Um, uh, my work involves geopolitical analysis. So part of the work, what it involves is um, uh, you know, doing public work and media, um, global media outlets mostly, uh, providing analysis during times of crisis, breaking news, developments. Uh, the other part of my work involves publishing. So actually I'm publishing in different and major publications around the world, uh, many times in different languages, uh, for publications in Europe, North America, in Asia. Um, then also I'm, I'm very active on the international lecture circuit. So I get invited as a speaker to speak on geopolitics uh, by financial services institutions, uh, wealth management funds, uh, sometimes gatherings uh, from multifamily offices, basically any kind of entity that's involved or exposed to uh, international commercial transactions. And obviously the times we're living in, the unstable times, the geopolitical element plays a, uh, an important part of it. So I'm sort of bridging the gap between the world of international politics and the world of international business. And then the other side of my work is for private clients. Uh, some family offices, uh, also some banks, financial services. What I do for them is I'm providing on a regular basis geopolitical risk analysis and business development. So if they have companies that are involved, once again, that has to be that element of cross-border uh, transactions. So if they have a company that's operating around the world and I help them develop contacts, I help them on and also executing on their business plans and working together with their internal teams. So it's a combination of geopolitical risk and international business development. So, and where are you today? I understand you're in Miami. Yes, uh, during this crisis, I've based myself here in Miami. Uh, obviously there are other benefits, good weather, uh, a lot more flexibility than lockdowns in many other places around the world. I mean, to, to be clear, there is a lockdown here, and there hasn't been a lockdown here since the middle of, of March of 2020. Uh, but it's been a lockdown. You know, public places obviously closed, beaches are closed, um, uh, restaurants, the essentials are open, supermarket, pharmacies. 
but you still have that ability to move around. Uh, so you can drive around during the day, late at night there has been a curfew, but what we're experiencing now in these recent days, like much of other parts of Asia, Europe and North America is the beginning of the easing of these lockdowns uh, in many developed societies. There's certain parts of the world where still the, the full impact of the virus has not been felt. And we see, we're seeing it unfold as we speak, places in Latin America, places in Africa, uh, more in the developing world. I think the course is still yet to run its course. Although here in the developed world, it'll still, this is something that will remain, uh, at least for the time being, but barring a second major wave, uh, we're starting to see you know, the virus level off in many of the societies, but it still remains a threat. So who do you think has, looking back on the advice that you've been providing and the countries you've been working with, who do you think has responded best to this? Or who are, who are the candidates that can hold their heads up high and say, we did the right thing with coronavirus? And when that sure. immediate threat was being faked, who, who do you feel actually stepped sure. up to the plate and demonstrated? The ones, the ones who have the obvious advantage, uh, some of the Asian countries, obviously because they've lived in a world, they've been exposed. And the reality is, is that people learn once it hits them. If they haven't, you know, in the Western countries, many of them have not seen a pandemic of this magnitude, arguably since 1918, influenza, this flu, known as the Spanish flu, although that's a misnomer. We'll just call it, say, for example, the 1918 flu, which in that time, you know, the world population was 2 billion people. Uh, according to statistics, about 500 million were infected. So that's a quarter of the world's population. And out of that, anywhere between 50 and 100 million died. So people who lived during that generation, they experienced the First World War. They obviously, many of them experienced the Second World War. They've understood what existential crises were about. Now, we've been hit with a hard pandemic. Is it on the scale of the 1918 flu? No. But yet many innocent people have not necessarily died. Uh, and we're in the process of learning. So a lot of it, I want to say is learning on the fly, but to an extent for certain societies as it is. Now, the Asian societies I'm pointing out are specifically places like uh, Taiwan, South Korea, and also Singapore. Although Singapore recently has, um, has, a, has experienced a second wave. But if you look at a global top 10 scale of countries that have been operating well, uh, those three have been on it. Taiwan, I would say, and Korea is obviously, and the Asian countries, is because of previous experiences and precedents in over the last 20 years, particularly if you look at the SARS flu. Uh, they were hit with that flu or with that threat, while in the Western societies, it never reached us. And there's been several flus that have hit them, viruses that have been hit in East Asia and other parts of Asia over the last 20 years. So we in the West, actually, we were unprepared. Not only were we unprepared from an infrastructure perspective, uh, systemically, but also mentally, psychologically, culturally, in every other different way. Hence, as the Western societies begin to exit these global lockdowns, it's a new normal that we have to adapt to. For many, it can be traumatic. For many, this, this lockdown, maybe we call it the lockdown limbo, has been traumatic for many people to varying degrees, okay? Uh, once again, going back to your question, I'd say South Korea, Taiwan, uh, Singapore, barring the second wave. Um, and then you have other, some Western societies that I think have done a very good job. You're looking at countries like Israel, uh, very low infection rates, uh, very low level of deaths. Uh, obviously, they have, they have their advantages organized. There needs to be an element of serious political leadership 
good organization in society, that you know, society is able to organize and mobilize itself. And I'd say one of the most important of that is also the word civic responsibility, is that citizens not just knowing about their rights, but understanding well their responsibilities. Other societies, I would say, I mean, the ones that I've pointed out obviously have smaller populations. I mean, uh, in South Korea, definitely above 40 million, uh, but also another major country, Germany. Uh, Germany, once again, has uh, well-organized political leadership, a sense of civic responsibility to the point whereby other societies are struggling to conducting testing. Uh, Germany, uh, until recently, is conducting 100,000 tests a day. That's mass testing. And even as we exit this, uh, we gradually phase out of lockdowns, words and realities such as mass testing, social distancing, it's not just a part of our lexicon, but it's part of our daily activities that we have to get accustomed to. Uh, other countries, and, you, and I'd say also Greece. Greece, obviously, a lot of people underestimated Greece. Uh, Greece, I think, had to its advantage is once again, responsible political leadership. The new prime minister who came in office less than a year ago. Uh, you had the fact of time of year. Obviously, had, the, had this virus spread during the height of the summer when it's the peak. It's, it's well, it's a good portion of their GIA and of their national economy is about tourism. And that's when all the foreigners come. The fact that it hit in Mar in February, March, there wasn't much international travel into the country. And plus the first country that it was in, obviously being Italy, Italy was hit like a tsunami. It gave the opportunity to other places in Europe, Greece, and I would say Central and Eastern Europe, that learned very quickly. They had a very brief window of opportunity to take advantage and to take the precautions. And I think Greece and other countries in Central and Eastern Europe did exactly that, is that they used that brief window of opportunity wisely to begin the social distancing, to, uh, to, you know, to begin lockdowns to varying degrees. Each country had varying degrees of lockdown. But the issue of mass, te of mass testing in many of the countries took place, not all of them, but at least there was that sense of the social distancing, the degree of lockdown, trying to prevent the rapid spread of the virus. It's a race against time. And so far at this point, none of these countries have experienced second waves, although it's important. What you need is eternal vigilance during this time. Until there's a cure or until there's an effective treatment, everyone still remains under threat. Do, um, do you see the new normal for the foreseeable future is testing, 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 but not in the months after this? For the next 12, 24, 36 months, are we going to have to go and get tested before we get on a plane to, to, to Greece in the future? Or, and how long are those tests going to be valid for? I mean, do you think, because they're saying that they're not going to be able to eradicate this. This is, we have to live with this for life now. And, and vaccines will have to be keep developed as the, as the virus mutates. The vaccines are going to have to keep up pace. And one of the big fears I have, and having spoken to some virologists, is that yes, there is a vaccine coming, but it might not be for the right strain when it's available for, for mass use. I mean, how are we going to get people to move safely? Are we, are we going to see testing stations at every, every airport we turn up in? Is there going to be some kind of immunization passport? And as we talk about movement of people, what do you see is going to be happening in, in terms of easing up the movement? And surely we have to be prepared to do future lockdowns or micro lockdowns of certain cities or regions where we see spikes if we're doing those mass testings. I can't assume that we've taken this hit now to open the doors up and for it to us to not expect it coming back. 
and I'm preparing myself for further lockdowns. Um, do you think that's reasonable to assume? And you know, talk us through, Michael, what you think is going to be uh, the way to resolve this, particularly at the same time as we come out of lockdowns in Europe, and you touched upon earlier, the world is not safe until every country on this planet has, has overcome the issues of the coronavirus. So if Brazil continues to have the rates rise at what it does, and we open our borders and we don't have a lockdown in London, we don't have imposed quarantine, surely you're at major risk again of, of, of second, third, fourth wave. So this can't just happen country by country. The, the world needs to, to come to a... To a co we, there needs to be far more collaboration here to, to actually overcome this. So do you want to talk about maybe what steps you see countries can do, but how are we going to, as people, what we can do to move around and ultimately what the world needs to do to collaborate to overcome this together? Sure. I mean, everything you've described is at the core of debates taking place internally amongst policymakers around the world. Uh, obviously, there's going to have to be some form or at least broad standards for various industries. You, know, you spoke about uh, the airline industry, aviation. In aviation, is going to have the worst. I mean, the loss in billions of dollars, obviously, of many planes being grounded, the lack of travel. Uh, from an economic business perspective, many of these airlines may not exist anymore, the ones that we at least were aware of, or you're going to see a consolidation. Uh, the International Aviation Transportation Authority right now is in talks with airlines and talks with governments to try to begin and at least have a basic set of rules or codes of conduct, at least we can call them. For example, uh, many in the U.S. as of May 1st, many airlines are going to make it mandatory to have wear face masks to wear uh, protective masks on flights uh, domestically, but more than likely that's also going to be internationally. So that's just one basic thing. There's probably some form of mandatory, at least the staff on the airplanes, I mean, all the flight crew, everyone's going to have to wear face, it's going to have to wear protective masks. That's, I'd say it's still debatable amongst ordinary flyers, but I think that's going to probably have to become mandatory. So that's part of the new normal. Uh, in terms of um, tourism, obviously, we have, so the aviation industry, the hospitality industry, extremely hit hard. Uh, just look at it from a European level. In recent days, many of the ministers of tourism of Europe uh, have been meeting, have been in discussions to try to develop common standards. And what you mentioned about is, you know, for example, the term that's being used is health passport. The health passport is being before you get into a flight, before you travel internationally, you're, you, know, you need a, some, a medical certificate or some form of medical document from your doctor saying whether or not you've had COVID, you know, just at least with some sort of medical history. That in and of itself, the World Health Organization has been warning against, but this health passport still remains yes. part of the debate. Uh, so these are just ideas in terms of what's out there, what's being discussed. But the bottom line is, yes, there will be new codes of conduct. There will be uh, requirements getting on planes, whether it's, uh, you know, example, like I said, the protective mask, taking temperatures of people before they get on flights. Firstly, and mostly they'll be giving temperatures for the flight crew, the pilots, the attendants, and then that'll also have to move on with the, with the airplanes. What we can expect on flights also eventually is fewer people and fewer travels. You know, many of us can see, you know, in terms of the road, the way the actual planes are set up, rows of three. Now, many of them want to take away the middle seat and have to have space between the two. Uh, many of the air flight, the flights and the companies are putting in instilling new type of, um, you call it air fresheners on the planes. 
that some of them claim that well over 95% of the air is uh, recycled. I mean, I'm not a virologist, so I'm not only the details about this, but it's an analysis that I've been following very closely. The hospitality industry and service, so it's the aviation industry, hospitality in terms of hotels, many places still the hotels remain closed. Some of them may not open for many months. The Southern European economies that have been hit hard in recent years economically, many of them also by the migration issue uh, from Africa, from the Middle East, particularly places like Greece and Italy, Spain, many of these countries, Portugal, they survive. They survive on many of them, large segments of their economies dependent upon tourism. And many of them will be missing out on tourism. And you're looking at some of the numbers are staggering, saying that up to 70% of flights uh, that would usually fly are not going to be, will not be flying this summer. So you're looking at a drop in possibly two-thirds to 70% of flyers that would normally go into the Mediterranean countries for tourism. And obviously that has a trigger effect in different industries, not just directly on the, on the airports, directly on the hotels, on the restaurants or the clubs that operate during the summer. It has a trigger effect even on their suppliers. So you're looking at primary impact, secondary, tertiary, and then beyond. Hence this global, uh, this global repercussions the question being is where will we be economically? Right now we've been in lockdown limbo in recent weeks, and recent months. As we emerge from that, I think the full economic impact, we're gonna start feeling it more and more in June, July, and going forward. May will be the month, May 2020 will mark a month of, we can call it limbo transitioning, transitioning from limbo into the new normal. But I think by July, August, we'll have, you know, the statistics obviously are not looking good right now. Uh, in the U.S., the most recent statistics on employment, people filing for unemployment, well, over 30 million now. Uh, so right now, I think the bottom line, yes, it's, it's bad economically. The question is, is how bad? It's definitely worse than the Great Recession of 2008. But are we, are we somewhere between 2008 or 1929? The Great Depression, 1929, somewhere in between. In my opinion, it's difficult to say, but one thing I could say, I and mean, I can definitely say, is that if we're going to have recurrent lockdowns, and the lockdowns will be extending into the third quarter of 2020, we'll probably be looking closer to 1929 than to the Great Recession of 2008. Do, um, do you think businesses will be able to charge more? So for example, I'm an airline and I can carry 300 people on a plane, but now I'm being uh, enforced to only carry 150 people. Do you think the airlines will be able to charge double? I mean, so I keep having a lot of conversations in my mind about inflation and cost of goods. And we see a number of restaurants saying, even if we're told that we have to reduce our numbers by 30%, we can't trade. So either there's going to have to be an adjustment in rents, in business rates, in taxes, although I, I expect the governments are going to want to put taxes up, given all the bailouts they provided. But if the costs of goods stay the same, if the cost of rent stays the same, if the business rates stay the same, and let's assume taxes go up, businesses are going to have to charge at least double to survive. So by charging double, I suspect there's a lot of people out there, given the unemployment numbers, um, and the amount of people that are going to be fearful of, 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 of actually going in and socializing, let's say restaurants or, or airplanes, for example, either they're going to have to charge double or the cost of everything is going to have to be slashed. Um, do you think that's, or what is the middle ground? Because it's quite yeah. clear that we're not going to be able to have restaurants at 100% occupancy and there's no word on reduction of costs. Um, so ultimately, everything's going to have to be 
you're gonna have to pay a lot more. Yeah, everything you've mentioned uh, forms or creates part of what I would be the vicious downward economic business cycle uh, because of the trigger effects and everything you say, I mean, I agree, is that logically one would say, you know, by business sense, common business logic would say, well, if I have to have fewer people, I need to charge more. But then as you pointed out correctly, if there's not enough people, if people are unemployed out there, they can't even afford it. So I think what's going to happen is obviously that's going to lead to a, a wave. A part of this vicious downward cycle is leading to a wave of bankruptcies in various sectors. And like I said, some of the most hard hit ones, I'll say call them essential and non-essential, but the bottom line is, is that if you have money and you're struggling and you have a family, you're going to go shop at the supermarket. You're not going to go shop. You're not going to go spend the evening out at the restaurant. So obviously, the hospitality industry within the line of fire. I think they were on the front on the line of fire. Uh, the major supermarkets and the pharmacies remain essentials. So just take a look at the lockdown. Our experiences during the lockdown. Who have remained open? The essentials. They're considered essentials because we need to survive upon them. And it'll be those essentials that will keep making money, will keep prospering, and I think will be you know will be able to, if they need to play with their prices, considering the volumes that they're dealing with, they're in a much stronger position to be able to adjust their prices uh, because of the magnitude of the size of their businesses and the massive segments of the economy that they're serving. Obviously, the smaller players in the industry, smaller supermarkets may struggle. Obviously, if there's local supermarkets and neighborhoods that have a good, loyal uh, customer base, uh, are able to think long-term. I think there's the ability to think long-term and also liquidity. You know, obviously, we keep hearing about cash is king and in this, this economy here, cash is not only the king, I mean, cash is the emperor uh, in, terms of, uh, you know, in terms of status. So I, it's, it's gonna be, a, a, when I say about the reality and the new normal, new normal setting, settling in by June, or June and July, much of what you discuss, we're going to see this unfolding. Right now, many uh, landlords, whether someone's residential or commercial, for a month or two, they've been given a bit of breathing room, whether it's been through federal government, government help. But at some point, once everything opens up, and if someone can't pay their rent, and the, and the landlord has to pay his mortgage to the bank, uh, and then this is going to part of that vicious, you know, that vicious downward cycle. Uh, that we can, I don't want to say we use the word carnage, but to an extent, uh, we have to be prepared for a lot of economic and business carnage in coming months. Yeah, I think we've just seen the first of it. I was looking today, and today is the 1st of May, we're recording this. Apparently, the S&P 500's loss is only down 10% from the start of the year. But it, we don't know what the economy is going to look like in three months' time. We, if there is a second lockdown, how are these businesses going to recover? And as you said, the essentials will survive, particularly the supermarkets. But at the same time, we're, as you know, Marco, I do a lot of work in East Africa and working with a number of the governments there. And having speak, spoken to a number of people in agriculture, they're not getting seed in. They're not getting fertilizer in. They are also coupled with the, the, the tragedies that we face due to climate change, whether it's severe drought or excessive rains. So, you know, those essentials are going to become more costly. Coffee is not getting out of countries. Um, and the countries that can get it out are putting it on planes, which can cost $15 a kilo. Um, exports of uh, 
food, fruit and vegetables from Kenya has gone down 90%. Now that's not to say they're not producing it. They can't get it out of country. And a kilo of potatoes from Kenya, if you can get it out of country, is costing you 15 kilos to, to land it in the UK. Um, no one's paying $20, $20 uh, a kilo for, for, for roast potatoes, certainly not in England, no matter how much we like our Sunday dinners. And in addition to that, I go back to the seed and the fertilizer. So we've got food rotting, we've got food that's not getting out, and then we've got seed that's not getting in. We, because of lockdowns, people can't actually go and plant, and then people can't fertilize either. And at some point, people won't be able to harvest. The harvests that are coming around is often a big harvest uh, in September, I believe, in coffee. But I'm more than happy to stand corrected because I've got so many facts running around my head around harvest at the moment. Um, there's a good chance those coffee beans won't be harvested. So those key commodity prices are going to shoot up as well. So even if the businesses can maintain it or they don't get the knock-on impacts from the borrowings or the essential guys can survive, the inflation risk must, must be huge amongst um, the, the, the future economy that we're in. I can't see inflation staying uh, at the levels it is. And of course, oil is throwing it off. And, but food is going to be key, key to this. Sure. Uh, if I mean, food security, job, securing yeah. global supply chains, or in this case, certain cases, is securing uh, national supply chains. And a lot of it, obviously, on a global scale, you have to look at it regionally also. For example, in North America, here in the U.S., uh, there's been many, if you look at uh, the meat industry, uh, President Trump uh, you know, passed an or signed an order uh, making sure that the meat industry keeps running. But many of those working within the, the factories uh, obviously are, you know, have come, they've gotten sick with the coronavirus. And that's obviously creating trigger effects in terms of the economy. And we're looking also at so well, the basically largest, the factories. Um, sorry to jump in, Mark. I was reading the largest pork uh, producer in America has closed down because over 50% of its staff got coronavirus. And it accounts yep. for something like 5 or 6% of the pork supply in exactly. the US. That's so, what I was referring to in terms of the meat industry. The example you just pointed out was examples the was exactly what I was what I was mentioning from a broader industry perspective, and that was just one. I mean, there's other big companies, uh, meat producers. You look at Tyson, which is based in the Midwest. Uh, Tyson obviously employs you know, thousands of people in the industry, and if there's a lack of if those supply chains break down because of lack of workers, the trigger effects will obviously spill over into the supermarkets now. Until recently, the supply chains have been running very effectively. Obviously, the infrastructure in the United States has been good. The trucks have been running. The truck drivers have been there. Uh, so they've made, they, they've actually been, those are people on the front lines. So the saviors of the flow of industry and the flow of keeping people eating and keeping the supermarkets supplied. But when you look at developing countries that don't have that infrastructure, as you mentioned, they're not able to take those products to market that's where you see the trigger effects even more serious and the consequences even being more dire. So obviously we see a difference between developing world and developed world. Uh, and that issue of food security is definitely, uh, it's on the front lines. For example, many, many products from the U.S., you look at fruits, for example, seasonal fruits, many of them come from different parts of Latin America. Some parts of Latin America yeah. are better prepared than others 
to supply those. Uh, the ships are running, uh, regardless of you know, the oil industry has suffered shocks, but there's certain, for example, the tanker industry within the shipping sector is doing very well. They're getting paid at huge prices just to supply storage. Uh, how long that'll last for probably may carry on for another couple of months. But even within shipping itself, uh, you know, one, one needs to wait uh, and see how everything unfolds. And they're not going to, and they're part of, the sort of, of that global supply chain. And no one's going to escape, whether directly or indirectly, everyone's going to be impacted and affected. Some worse than others, but once again, it's, it's the interconnectedness in the entire global supply chains that puts everyone at risk. Like I said, some worse than others, but no one will be able to escape the, the impact of it. What, what, um, what do you think will be the new markets that come from coronavirus? What are going to be the opportunities and where should people be, be looking on the horizon in terms of considering their investments, considering actually getting out and doing business again? But what business should yeah. they be thinking about? You know, from a market perspective, just ask the basic common sense question. Uh, what are the essentials? Who are providing the essentials? Uh, obviously, if we're looking at the food sector, um, anything dealing with nutrition, uh, anything dealing with high tech, look at our daily lives. What do we need? We all need that cell phone. We all need the software. We all need the hardware. So I think in terms of high tech and what you're seeing is also, I mean, a lot of crises like these, like we want to experience in right now, Often, you know, there is transformation, but that, that transformation can take shape more. And I think it's more about accelerating existing trends, existing orientations. Crises like these will accelerate it. Uh, so something that may have materialized in, within five to 10 years time is gonna happen at a much quicker pace. And specifically what I'm speaking about is digitalization. Uh, people who never, you could say this tech savvy people and obviously this tech challenge people and this everyone else in between. Uh, so many people who were previously forced, you know, or previously were reluctant to use technology in their daily lives will actually now be forced by necessity. They will be using, so it's no longer by choice. Now we're talking about by necessity, increasing the digi digitalization of one's personal life, whether it's professionally or personally. So when you talk about investing where, which markets, definitely the tech sector, uh, food security sector, and just to ask as an entrepreneur, particularly as an entrepreneur and investor, ask yourself the basic questions. What are the essentials that people need in time of crisis? Who's producing them? Where do they come from? What supply chains do they use? And that I think provides some insight into the areas that will keep growing. Hospitality, as we mentioned, hospitality is more of a choice. It's not a basic necessity. And so things that are not basic necessities will wind up surviving more. And so I look, look at the core, core essentials. And from there, just using a bit of imagination, using logic, doing a bit of research, that'll provide the answers to your question as to where to invest. So, Marco, I've had a few questions come in from uh, a number of the Adoria members who are really excited to hear that you'll be speaking with me today. And we've covered a lot of interesting topics, but it would be rude of me not to uh, dive into some of the questions that have come through. And a lot of them are talking about what history, you know, what is history going to say about politicians and talking about what we can trust. So first question I've got here is asking, 
what politicians and global leaders during this time are going to be recognized for doing the right things and who do you think is going to be uh forgotten about or possibly recognized for doing the wrong things listen we make history history is made today but the reality and the true objective analysis takes years so it's talk, the question requires one to look into the distant future and kind of speculate back in the past what's going on now. And I'll attempt to do that. I'll try to do that. Uh, basically, uh, obviously, uh, one needs a gift of rhetoric to be rhetorically gifted because in times of crisis, people need hope. And those leaders who are gifted with their rhetoric are able to connect to ordinary people. Uh, you know, they will be recognized at least in the immediate term. Now, in the long term, whether those, those that, that gifted rhetoric was just words, in other words, it was more superficial than anything else, will be determined in future. But at least a lot of those leaders were able to connect to provide whole people. I think at the least for the, for the present and immediate future, and the foreseeable future will be recognized. So it's, that's one thing, rhetoric is important. Obviously there has to be substance, is understanding the magnitude of the threat, having appreciated the magnitude of the threat, and acting upon that threat. So it's not just about uh, you know, being gifted rhetorically. It's not just about saying, yes, I recognize the threat. It actually demands having done something concrete about it. And if we look at certain leaders, for example, in some of the countries that I mentioned to you, may not be specific leaders, I think we can look at countries. Once again, I mean, look at a country like Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan, as early as, as late, the latter part of December of 2019, was already, uh, already understood that, that uh, SARS-like uh, flu or strain of it was, was rapidly spreading on mainland China. And immediately by the end of June, at the end of January, or the end of December of 2019, they were already scanning people flying in, particularly cities like Wuhan. Uh, they immediately, by, the, by January, stopped the export of you know, personal protection uh, material gear because they, they understood that they were gonna need it for their own domestic market and they're the second largest producer in the world. So I would say certain countries definitely had, and then plus they themselves, they have the experience of understanding the playbook of mainland China. Uh, what I mean by that is that they understand how they operate and by when it was, I'm gonna be honest, I'm gonna be straightforward. I, you know, there was a refusal to recognize whether it was a cover up, whether it was intentional or unintentional, whether it was malfeasance or misfeasance, Yet, to, yet remains to be fully determined. But I think there was, there's gotta be, uh, mainland China has to assume its fair share of responsibility for the spread of its virus at home and globally. Uh, so that can, what I've just said can create controversy, and I'm sure it will. Uh, but I think, you know, I think a country like Taiwan, when Taiwan made, uh, it was pleading and trying to reach out to the World Health Organization by early January, uh, they, their pleas were being rejected because they're not, not recognized as a member state of the World Health Organization. And plus, so if, if I think the sad reality is that at the very early stage of this crisis, due to political reasons, uh, the, also the World Health Organization is going to have to assume its fair share of responsibility for politicizing this from the very beginning by rejecting Taiwan's pleas, Taiwan's understanding and that could have contributed a lot. Uh, and Taiwan has done a lot, but obviously in the international media, it's not being covered as much as it should have. Other places well, a, that I would say, uh, a, go ahead, please. No, 
that's an interesting point, Marco, because th there is a question here, uh, which I should probably interject with, because I think it, 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 it's where I see you're taking um, this point. I think this is a really good question as part of it. And someone says, how can we actually be sure that the global media outlets that might have hidden agendas are trustworthy when it comes to the news? You know, how, are, are we certain we're getting the facts? And as you started talking, I thought it was important we raised that question as, as well from, from one of the members here, because it, I think it, it leads in nicely uh, to what you just said. Yeah, I mean, just to give you one example, I believe it was as early as sometime in February, uh, when one, um, one media source was interviewing a World Health Organization official, uh, and I think it was done via, you know, via Skype, or, and the person, the interviewer, uh, was asking the World Health Organization official specifically about Taiwan, and that official pretended not to hear the question, and that caused a lot of controversy in the media. So from very early stages, this, politi this politicization of the process of the uh, of the coronavirus uh, has been from the very earliest times, and I and I said there's a lot there's oh. independent media, there's media that's owned uh, by it's corporately owned, some of the media state owned, and each one to a large extent has varying agendas according to who their owners may be, who their commercial sponsors may be. Oh, the independent also in the independent media, you know, one needs to also be careful ideological agendas that certain people in the national media may have. So it's not a black or white. I think it's very much a gray zone. And uh, that's why it's important, in my opinion, to try to get your news or try to get your analysis from as many different sources as reasonably possible. So I've got one last question for you, Marco, because I know you're a very busy man. And the question says, it's been said that the dynamic between leaders and followers has been eroded and replaced with resentment. Do you feel that uh, the public is starting to resent leaders or do you feel that trust has been eroded? My feeling on this is that it, once again, it depends on the country, it depends on the leadership that people have yeah. seen. And the country, also it depends the on the fact. Yeah. Country leadership results and also civic and i used that word earlier civic responsibility we speak about members of the public if they can have if maybe disillusion with their leaders uh disillusion with their uh, you know, private sector leadership public sector leadership because it's not just about only public it's also about private sector leadership um you know when certain individual it's these our representatives particularly in democratic societies their reflections, their direct reflections upon the public. So it's not just about pointing the fingers at them. Each individual citizen has to look at within. We have to look at this also intrinsically. Uh, so when change comes, if we ordinary members of the public expect the change just to come from the top down, I think that's the wrong approach. Change, yes, much of it has to come from the top down, but it also has to be from the bottom up. That's why in democratic societies, and me personally, I'm very much, uh, I, I like to look at very closely at local government, what's being done at the local level in government. So this is all about top down, but particularly bottom up. In democratic societies, local governments, here in the US, for example, municipal governments, state governments, some of the best ideas don't come from the federal government, but they actually come from the local level. There needs to be vibrant local political life, debate at the local level, 
and the best of it, I think, will, can trickle up to the top. In the same way from the top down, there's many gifted leaders. Uh, maybe they're in short supply these days. Yes, I'll, I'll agree with that point. Gifted leadership is very much in short supply these days. But there are individuals who work their way up over time. And that's the key thing is, uh, you know, you need to have a vision of where you want society to have. That vision needs to be realistic. And you have to have the ability and the, the stamina and the ability to be able to, uh, to mobilize people, to inspire people, to, to move with you, to mobilize, to organize. And particularly that's important during times of crisis. That is very true. And we've seen that in New Zealand. People were faced with very tough lockdowns very early on, but they embraced it. Whereas here in the UK, you know, relatively some of the toughest lockdowns globally, but in comparison to others, quite liberal, we still see significant amounts of people on the streets, far too many cars on the road. And I, I, I think the British public has done a fantastic job, but um, we, we haven't gone, the, the, the civil society hasn't necessarily done as much as it could. And I think we were failed at the beginning because the police went out there and did a fantastic job. And then quite quickly, the British media started telling the police off for telling people to go home. And, uh, you know, it was, I felt very sorry for the police officers. They're there on the front line at risk, exposed to the virus, started arresting people for sunbathing and having picnics and uh, house parties. And then two days later, British tabloids, of course, are saying the cops just don't know how, how to let us be. And, British public is not stupid. The I mean, British public yeah, is not stupid. Going, yeah. One of the not, serious but... issues in autocratic societies, uh, it hasn't been as difficult for them because in autocratic societies, obviously the use of repression is, is natural and it's normal to them. So not, so they'll mobilize the societies by force uh, and also use a crisis like this as a pretext uh, to further strengthen, uh, further strengthen and consolidate their power. But in democratic societies, in democratic societies, obviously there's the issue of civil liberties, but also civil responsibilities. And it's a gray zone. And if you look at, for mm -hmm. example, at certain indexes and indicators that the top 10 countries, the top countries in the world, uh, who has dealt best with, the, with, the, with COVID-19, most of those countries at the top 10 level are actually democracies. And we mentioned names, you know, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, Germany, Australia. There's many countries that have been. So I think the whole narrative about autocratic societies doing it best. And I think this narrative of from that we've gotten also from a campaign from mainland China of you know that the one party state is superior in how it's done it. I think that's more of a of a narrative that's losing steam over time. As we exit yeah. from a lockdown limbo, I think there's going to be more proof that the democratic societies have actually uh, operated this more effectively, still retain the civil liberties, and are going to be providing lessons for the next, for the, whether it's the next wave of this specific strain of the virus or any future virus or pandemic that takes place. Many in Western democratic societies weren't, weren't prepared in the way I think we should have been. But that doesn't say that there were many, there was a lot of good work that was done, many lessons to be learned, and many new realities that we have to face as we move forward. No, it's very true. Well, look, Marco, um, thank you very much for joining me. It's clear we've got a long way to go, a lot of uncertainties. 
us as citizens of the globe have a major role to play. We can't leave it just to politicians and uh, political leaders. We do need to question uh, and, and, and seek out as much information and uh, news sources as possible. To some degree, we just have to sit tight. But of course, as part of all this, there's going to be opportunity. There are uh, key essentials that the world is going to continue to require. And we, we need to just continue to hope and pray and, and be conscious that it, we do not get out of this by just surviving in the developed world. Those in the underdeveloped world and the poorest of nations need to come through this successfully for us to come through this successfully as well. Well, once again, Marco, thank you for being here for Adorium Talks. And we hope to be seeing you in person very, very soon. Thank you.